Welcome everyone to our new show, Unraveling Political Theory, where we examine different schools of political theory as it pertains to political ideologies and ways of organizing society. So the goal of this show is both to give historical context to the origins of such political theories and also to point out how they manifest in today's world so that we all can identify them when we see them. Uh, joining me each week will be Keith Preston. Uh, so today's topic is cultural Marxism, but before we start, I want to give Keith a brief chance to introduce himself and give a little background on his experience on the subject matter. Well, I, uh, I'm the chief editor of a website called attackthesystem.com, and uh, that's where we promote a philosophy that I call pan-anarchism, and that was developed for the purpose of developing a synthesis of various anarchist and anti-state, anti-authoritarian, libertarian movements. Uh, I'm also, I've also written about six books outlining some of these ideas uh, even further. And I've also done uh, a lot of work in some other fields uh, on, um, published a book on um, anti-modernist intellectuals from the 20th century. And I wrote another book critiquing political correctness and uh, as well as uh, several books on anarchist theory. I wrote a, um, a book critiquing um, uh, globalization or globalism or specifically the Washington consensus or, or American hegemony. So I've actually done a lot of work in a lot of different areas. And then uh, for a number of years, I've spoken at conferences here and there. I've spoken at some alt-right oriented conferences. I've spoken at some libertarian oriented conferences. Um, and I've sort of become a, a go-to guy for critiquing things like PC and things like that. Now, I suppose what's unique about me in that regard is that critics of PC are a dime a dozen on the right, uh, ranging from neocons all the way over to the fascists and neo-Nazis and all of that. Uh, you find some libertarian critics of PC, you find some mainstream liberal like uh, Dave Rubin and, and uh, Christina Hoff Summers and people like that that are critics of PC. But I'm actually one of the few people, really I'm the only person I know of from a far left background that actually criticizes PC uh, because PC is so uh, uh, intertwined with the left nowadays. I'm like about the only person that dissents from it. So uh, that's a, a bit interesting. Um, so that's you know really what I've become most well known for. That's the uh, aspect of my work that's uh, the most uh, famous, I suppose you could say. Awesome. So so let's jump right into this here. Um, can you ex first explain Marxism and then how this term Marxism led to the term cultural Marxism and what do we even mean by the term cultural Marxism? Well, Karl Marx was one of the most influential thinkers uh, of the last 200 years. And uh, the essence of Marxism is that it's both a theory of political economy, uh, it's an, a method of historical interpretation. Uh, it also has a wider philosophical paradigm called dialectical materialism. Uh, but the core idea of Marxism is that uh, economics is what shapes every other aspect of human existence. Um, Marx believed that uh, society evolves in a way that's based on the what would he call the material base of the society and what this means is that at any given time in history you'll have different kinds of societies with different um, economic systems you know the most primitive kind of economic system is a hunter-gatherer society and then we start to see the agricultural revolution emerge when the plow was invented and things like that 
And then that was the model that existed in many societies for thousands of years until the time of the Industrial Revolution. And then the uh, steam engine is invented and factory production is invented and railroads are invented. So that creates a whole new type of uh, what Marx called a mode of production. And a mode of production is just a fancier way of saying an economic system. And parallel to that, Marx believed that every kind of economic system has a uh, a dominant class, and that is the class that call that controls what he calls the means of production, and that's the um, means by which people make a living. For example, in a feudal society, uh, it's who controls the land, or in an industrial society, it's who controls the industry, the factories and workshops and mills and railroads and all of that. And in a society like our own, by extension, it would be those that control the big corporations and the technology and all of the things that define a modern economy like our own. So in, according to Marx, there's a, a dominant class in every economic system, and the economic system is organized to benefit this dominant class, the people who control the means of production. Um, and everything else will be reflective of the interests and values of this class. For example, the government will uh, enact whatever policies and laws that are beneficial to the dominant class. The educational system will teach the values of the dominant class. The uh, foreign policy of the state will reflect the um, you know, geopolitical interest of the dominant class. Uh, culture, even the wider cultural values and social values of the wider society will reflect the values of the dominant class. Religion uh, will exist to affirm the legitimacy of the dominant class. For example, in the uh, ancient world, you see that um, the emperor being deified as a god. In the Middle Ages, you see the uh, divine right of kings um, and all of that kind of thing. So the, essentially, Marx believed that ideas, culture, religion, philosophy, art, all of that stuff is reflective of the wider economic system, that you know, the, the economics shapes everything else, and everything else in society is geared towards the interest of the dominant class. That's, that's straight Marxism right there. Um, Marx also was a class theorist. He identified different social classes that existed in, a, in, in an early industrial society of the type he was familiar with. Uh, there's the capitalist class, which controls the means of production. There's the uh, what he called the petty bourgeoisie, which is like the self-employed small business class. There's the uh, the proletariat. These are wage workers who, who work for wages and do not own means of production. There's also the peasants that are still connected to the land. Um, and then, of course, there's neo-Marxism. There, you know, there are variations of neo-Marxism that try to apply these ideas to a modern society. But th that's the essence of Marxism, right there—the idea of of historical materialism and you know, class conflict and 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 the lit and the idea that culture and everything else is shaped by class relations and the economic system. And so, taking that definition of Marxism of this class struggle. How is that applied to the term now cultural Marxism? Well, cultural Marxism is a term that has come to be uh, synonymous with what we call political correctness. Now, I actually think that this is a misuse of the term Marxism. I, I've used the term cultural Marxism myself in the past just for the sake of convenience. But I think it's something of a, um, an error to criticize any or, or to label anything 
that is not rooted in the concept of economic determinism as Marxism. Um, once you abandon economic determinism, you really have no longer have Marxism. You might have something that's influenced by Marxism or a hybrid of Marxism and something else. But Marxism is class conflict and economic determinism. But what's called cultural Marxism is uh, the idea that uh, the left, if you look at the political left, what we see is a transformation of the left over time. The original left goes back to the 18th century. It was the uh, the wider philosophy, the classical liberal philosophy, the 18th century enlightenment philosophy that uh, overthrew the old order, the, the traditional monarchies, the, um, the aristocracies, the established churches and things like that, and created modern democracies and republics and those forms of government and modern capitalism and all of the things that you know, we're familiar with in modern society. But the classical liberalism was the original left. All right, once classical liberalism became fully institutionalized in the 19th century and the Industrial Revolution begins to develop and the, um, the class distinction between the owners of uh, capitalist productive property on one hand and, and the working class on the other hand started to emerge, then the left starts to become identified with socialism, with communism, and with anti-capitalism generally for probably 130 years. The, uh, the left had more or less been synonymous with anti-capitalism or elite. Well, from, from the time of, I would say from roughly the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, you know, the, the pre-US Civil War period in Europe, uh, up until probably the end of World War II, I would argue that the left was defined by anti-capitalism. The left was the labor movement, the, the socialist movement, the communist movement, the, the anarcho-syndicalist movement and all of that. Now, what we see starting around the 1960s is a transformation of the left where the left is less oriented towards class-based politics, um, at, at least in the developed countries, maybe not everywhere, but in the, in the advanced countries. Um, the left becomes synonymous with cultural politics, and this is where this term cultural Marxism comes in. Uh, if we go back and we look at the kinds of radicalism that came out of the new left in the 1960s and 1970s, what we see is that there's very little interest in that in class-based politics. In fact, there's actually a hostility to class-based politics. Um, it was widely believed, for example, that the working class had been bought off by capitalism or by consumer culture. In fact, one of the leading theoreticians of the uh, new left was Herbert Marcosa. Herbert Marcuse argued that that the um, the uh, working class had essentially been off, been uh, bought off by the consumer culture that modern advanced capitalism had produced. You know, now that workers could uh, own their own car and own their own house and have a washing machine and a TV set, they didn't really care about class struggle anymore because all their basic bread and butter needs had been met. So, what happened was that um, a lot of <coughs> excuse me. A lot of leftists uh, during the 1960s, 1970s era, even before that really on an intellectual level, started to develop the idea that the left would need new constituencies in order to advance socialism or, or, uh, or communism or, or left-wing anarchism or you know, whatever it was they were into ideologically. Um, so they started looking towards other groups. They started, another issue too was they thought that the traditional working class was culturally reactionary. You know, the idea is that 
you know, the workers are not interested in overthrowing capitalism and creating a socialist system. The, the workers are interested in uh, the material uh, consumption for themselves, but the, what, but the working class tends to be patriotic. You know, the working class tends to be socially conservative. Uh, in the United States, the view was that the working class, or at least the larger dominant white working class was racist and all of that. Um, so the left started moving towards this orientation towards uh, away from the working class or away from labor unions, away from class struggle towards uh, towards race, towards the idea that, um, you know, the racial struggle against white privilege or white hegemony or whatever would be the foundation of the left. And by extension, male privilege and, and, and feminism and, and then gay rights and then the environment and, and you know, disabled people liberation and all of these kinds of things that have emerged since then. Um, that's really how the left starts to undergo this kind of transformation. It was during this post-war period uh, where you had the Western countries, certainly the United States, experiencing unleveled um, periods of prosperity. And even the working class could now live like a middle class. Um, the left starts moving away from a class-based politics towards this kind of cultural or politics uh, towards more marginal social groups. Uh, another, uh, aspect of this is uh, was uh, is the influence of Antonio Gramsci. Antonio Gramsci was a, an Italian communist back in the 1920s during the Mussolini era. And he basically argued that for the left to gain political power, it first had to dominate the culture. It had to dominate the language and the discourse. It had to dominate the world of ideas. Uh, it wasn't enough to just simply seize power by force like the Bolsheviks did in Russia. It was instead argued that the uh, that you essentially had to uh, win the battle of propaganda first. Uh, and the way that you do that is you have to remove from um, the working class or from the people or whatever, what, what they consider to be false consciousness, things like national patriotism, religion, traditional family values, traditional family uh, gender roles and things like that. And you have to replace this with this new kind of you know progressive enlightened um, uh, cultural outlook, and, and there are a lot of different variations of this, but this this is an idea that became influential as well. So this is how what we call cultural Marxism uh, emerges. It's sort of a transformation of the left away from class politics towards cultural politics um, and towards the idea that it will be more marginal social groups that are the vehicle by which the left advances its objectives rather than the working class. And this idea that you have to get maintain, you have to gain um, cultural uh, domination before you can gain political domination. That's really the essence of what cultural Marxism is labeled. Again, I don't think it's really appropriate to call that cultural Marxism because it's not really Marxism. But uh, I, the term that I prefer to use is totalitarian humanism. But uh, uh, but that's essentially what the left is today. Uh, if you uh, hang out with leftists or read leftist books or websites or forums or whatever, there's very little discussion of the class struggle and that kind of stuff. Uh, here and there, there is, but mostly they're concerned with race and uh, and they're concerned with gender and, and sexuality and all these other things that are derivative of that. And increasingly, we see uh, discussions of things like ageism and, and weightism and heightism and fat phobia and all kinds of things. Um, uh, the transgender thing is big now on the left. Um, and all of this is... Uh, the idea, you know, the, the, the core, I, I guess if you could say there's one definitive idea that runs through all this, it's sort of the idea that the, the real struggle is not against 
capitalism or the state or, or any of the things that may have been the targets of the left in the past. Instead, it's more about the struggle is against straight, white, um, uh, cisgendered, male, Christian hegemony. Uh, you know, that's, the, that's really the left's defining paradigm today. That's certainly the paradigm that most leftists hold to, irrespective of what else they call themselves. They, you know, whether they call themselves liberals or socialists or communists or anarchists or something else, that's really what they're mostly concerned about. You know, I remember uh, as an interesting anecdote, I like to tell about this. Some years ago, I was uh, on a university campus. I was with a friend of mine who's in his 60s. He's a, a lifelong communist, grew up in the French Communist Party when the, when the French Communist Party were full-blown Stalinists. They were not just you know social Democrats with the label, the communist label, they were full-blown Stalinists. He participated in the uh, Paris uprising in 68, decided after that that the Communist Party of France was not radical enough, so he became a Maoist. So this is the kind of background this fellow comes from, but I was with him on a college campus a few years back and we came up to a, a table and uh, an American uh, Marxist-Leninist group, the uh, Workers' World Party, were selling their newspapers and he picks one up and, and flips through it, and there's all this all this stuff in here about uh, transgender people and, and gay rights and, and feminism, and he just throws it right back at them and says, "Nothing in here about socialism. You know, you're not socialists." Um, so that, you know, that's the difference between full-blown traditional Marxism on one hand and what gets labeled cultural Marxism on the other. Yeah, I, I, I guess for me, I kind of look at it like kind of like purging all social constructs almost um that that it's all it kind of i was going to get into this question later but i think it's a good time now kind of this difference between moral relativism relativism and moral realism as in like the moral relativism as there is no kind of ob uh, there is no objective truth and so we need to let everyone kind of find you know there's no right or wrong for you know for anyone it's kind of all relative to your own opinion that's why like if you have a if you have a, a view where you're you don't like or not not say you don't like but you're not really comfortable with transgender or whatnot that you have to everyone has to accept it it's like purging anyone's it sounds good on the you know surface but purging everyone's beliefs and making this kind of perfect one world culture almost it seems like um do you, do you do you think that this moral relativism and versus moral realism is kind of at the philosophical heart of this debate between cultural marxism and more freedom-minded type movements uh yeah i think potentially but i think it's important to clarify the terms uh, first when we talk about uh what moral relativism is. Moral relativism is the view that morality is relative to experience or situations. Um, uh, for example, um, the, the idea of moral relativism is the idea that what is moral in a certain circumstance may not be moral in another circumstance, or perhaps morals and, and ethics and things like that are simply a matter of opinion and emotion and individual preference and, and things of that nature. Um, that's that's moral relativism. Um, moral realism is also called moral objectivism. And it's the idea that moral values or standards are independent of subject individual opinions. Uh, they tend to believe that moral uh, realists tend to believe that moral values are more like scientific facts. Like it's it's true that this is not moral or this is moral. 
uh, you know, just like it's true that gravity exists and things of that nature. I'm kind of oversimplifying, but that's that's a similar, you know, for, for practical purposes, that's a good way to look at it. Moral relativists look at it like no, uh, you know, moral values are not simply uh, objective facts. They're, they're matters of opinion, emotion, or at least they're dependent upon circumstance and conditions and things like that. Um, what I think is interesting, though, about this question is that moral uh, relativism tends to dominate the uh, academy or at least the uh, prevailing philosophical paradigm. Like the prevailing philosophical paradigm in the West today is postmodernism, which is rooted basically in the ideas of Nietzsche and by extension Heidegger and then later the deconstructionists like Foucault and, and some of those people. Uh, but this is very much a moral relativist point of view. Postmodernism is the idea that you know, um, values are largely subjective, uh, that uh, you know, values are culturally derived or, or culturally relative and things of that nature. Um, postmodernists, you know, certainly, certainly Nietzsche, Foucault, thinkers like that are not moral realists. Now, uh, what's interesting, though, is that while this is the philosophical paradigm that dominates the modern Western world, uh, it's also true that um, on the political left, we see a, a very, I would say, a very intense form of moral realism uh, in the sense that they are, I think, in fact, I think one of the greatest misconceptions that enemies of the left or critics of the left tend to have is that the left are moral relativists. There are a lot of religious conservatives, for example, like traditional Catholics and evangelical Protestants and others, they'll say, well, the problem with the left is that they are moral relativists. And that, that's not really the case. What they're doing is they're confusing the left with postmodernism. Right? The postmodernists are moral relativists. But the, uh, the left are moral uh, realists in the sense that they have a very, uh, I would say, rigid and almost religious-like view of what is moral or what is not. Uh, for example, you will never hear a serious, serious leftist say that whether or not racism is good or bad is just somebody's opinion. You know, they will insist that you know, racism is awful and that's a fact just like gravity is a fact or just like the uh, heliocentric solar system is a fact. Uh, and that was, is true about every other value that the left thinks is important. Um, you know, for example, uh, the transgender uh, thing is, is one thing. Um, they, you know, the left will, nowadays will be adamant when they insist that people who are transgender have a, uh, a genuine uh, biological innate condition that uh, motivates their their trans their transgenderedness or whatever. Uh, the same thing they will say with with being gay with homosexuality. They'll say, well, you know, being gay is not simply a, a, a lifestyle preference. They are biologically determined homosexuals. What's interesting about that though is the left totally rejects these ideas when it comes to race and gender on a more general level. If you try to argue with a leftist and say, well, perhaps there are just innate biological or genetic differences between races or between men and women, they say, oh no, that's a horrible racist, sexist idea. But they do an about face when it comes to things like gay, uh, like homosexuality or, or gender identity and things of that nature. So there's a great deal of, uh, I would say, contradiction in some of this, but, but the idea that leftists are moral relativists is, is not the case at all. They're very much moral realists. They have their own very uh, rigid set of uh, moral values that, you know, that, and there are things like you were saying that everybody has to care about. Um, if, for example, you, you never want to tell a leftist, well, I don't care about the environment. Uh, they're like, what are you talking about? Of course, you, you have to care about the environment. You, you know, you must care. Uh, you know, it, it's like it's like saying your heart has to be right. You, know, you have to care about social justice. You have to care about the environment. 
So I, I think that's the the important distinction that has to be made. Yeah, I would agree with you because, like you said, if you, a lot of times they are very very rigid about certain things. Like I'll, I'll be honest, I've been I live in a very um, liberal city, and you know I've been on different dates and. If you have any discomfort with any of these social issues, they're like, whoa, you know, it's like, it's not like, oh, well, it's just your truth. It's not that. It's, you know, it's kind of like there is an objective truth and you don't believe in it. Well, you're kind of behind the times, I guess. So how does, I know we kind of touched on this already, but how does cultural Marxism apply to today's world? Uh, maybe some like real world examples where we see it and also with that is there big money driving these causes for you know cult these cultural marxism ideas well I, I think the question you're asking is what are the real world manifestations of a pc you know how does how does pc actually work in the real world or this wider philosophical uh trajectory that i've just discussed how does that actually manifest itself in real life and, and if so who's backing it uh, this, as far as examples, we can find tons of examples. Uh, you can just do a Google search and find all sorts of examples of how uh, this philosophy influences the wider society. Uh, one example that occurred recently were the riots at, uh, at UC Berkeley over the presence of Milo Yiannopoulos. Now, the issue is not whether you like or agree with Milo, Milo Yiannopoulos as much as the fact that you uh, have this one guy who's a, a gay Jewish guy who brags about his sexual, gay sexual relationships with black guys who is somehow considered to be a fascist. Uh, when in reality, his, his actual politics are pretty much those of a mainstream conservative. I mean, he doesn't sound much different than a Republican with many of his uh, actual politics. And, you know, the fact that he's this flamboyantly gay character is what gives him his, his edge. And I think that's what really gets him the attention that he has. Uh, but other than that, he's really no different than somebody like, say, Ben Shapiro or some, some character like that. Um, but we see that uh, Milo Yiannopoulos was speaking at Berkeley, and we see the left went out and, and went crazy over this. They were setting fires and, and uh, knocking down fences and attacking people with sticks and things like that. Now, over a guy who's just a, a regular mainstream conservative, um, Dave Rubin, uh, who is a, a liberal, libertarian-leaning liberal, um, fairly moderate in a lot of his views, but uh, Dave Rubin tells the story about recently uh, he was appearing at another university and with him was Christina Hoff Summers, who was a liberal feminist, uh, you know, a moderately liberal feminist, and also Dr. Peter Bogosian, who was an atheist philosopher who has a, a Chinese, I know, it, I, don't know, I don't know if he has a Chinese wife or maybe has a Chinese child um, that's adopted. I forgot, I forgot what the family relationship is. Now, the, I mean, anyway, none of these people qualify as a uh, as white supremacist or anything like that. And yet they were speaking at a uh, university together as part of a panel and they had to have armed guards to escort them to the uh, facility uh, because of the threats that were coming from the left. Um, th I mean, there's so many different kinds of examples. The, the, one of the, the more interesting ones I think is the gay wedding cake thing. The, fa the fact that if you are say, have own a bakery and you have some kind of religious or philosophical objection to gay marriage and you, you that somebody comes in and wants a gay wedding cake and you refuse, you can actually be sued now. You can you know, be sued for hundreds of thousands of dollars because you've discriminated against someone. Um, and there's a whole lot of incidents of this type that we can uh, identify, whether it's uh, you know, mob action to try to suppress free speech, as the case with uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, or whether it's ever intrusive statism um, in the 
name of enforced equality uh, or you know whether it's just a kind of uh, it, it cultural and atmosphere that tries to enforce all of these kinds of norms in a, in a way that's very intolerant of dissent. You know, another example was Brendan Eich, the, uh, the CEO of the Mozilla company who was uh, dismissed because some years earlier he had made a donation to an anti-gay marriage group or something like that. Uh, you know, we're not talking about people who, you know, are open public members of the Klan or the neo-Nazis or something like that having, you know, professional sanctions imposed on them. We're talking about people who have just run, run of the mill mainstream conservative views or views that would have been considered the norm, you know, just a few years ago. Um, so that, that, you know, and there, again, there's many, many examples we can uh, cite, but those are just a few that are more recent that have been more prominent in recent times. Now as to where this is coming from, um, who's funding it or whatever, this is more important than who's funding it directly uh, in terms of individuals or whatever. I think a better question is why is this kind of stuff becoming more commonplace? And I think that the, what's happening there is we have to look at the wider political system that we have um, in the United States. We could make a, a similar critique of some of the other uh, Western countries generally, but but in the United States, what we have is um, you know we look at this political divisiveness we have today between the Democrats, Republicans, Reds and Blues, liberals and conservatives. And what, what we see is we uh, a range of rival cultural and economic factions that are trying to gain control of the state. Uh, you know, the Republicans represent the more right wing of the ruling class, and that's the traditional, you know, um, banking and oil and armaments and agribusiness stuff. Uh, they represent on a ground level the more um, traditional middle America, main street, middle class, um, and then on the uh, on the on the Democratic side, at the top level, they represent the newer, more high tech industries. You know, the left wing of the ruling class, if you will, things like Silicon Valley and Madison Avenue and uh, Hollywood and the mass media and uh, high, you know, computer technology and things of that nature. And then on the more ground level, they represent the left wing of the middle class, which is the more urban, cosmopolitan, professional class. The upwardly mobile sectors of traditional outgroups like minorities and, and feminists and gays and all of that. So what we see is a rivalry within the elite and by extension within the middle class for control over the state and over the system. Um, and we see that both sides have an ideological justification for their views. Like we see that with the, uh, the so-called conservatives, it tends to be this kind of uh, quasi-theocratic nationalism, this kind of God and family and country kind of uh, uh, conservatism, a more recognizable form of conservatism, or, or at least you know right wing or whatever kind of thinking, and with the uh, with the liberal side, uh, they actually have their own parallels to that, but it's under this banner of social justice and equality and things of that nature, and both sides have this kind of ideological uh, system that they're using to justify their own positions. Um, that actually Marx had a term for that. He called it the superstructure. He believed that any kind of class that was uh, holding power or striving to hold power would have its own ideological superstructure that in turn reflected its own uh, material interests. And with the, in the case of the, the politically correct uh, people, that represents the left wing of the capitalist class and by extension the left wing of the middle class um, advancing their own interest under the guise of this kind of ideology. Uh, and you, you actually see a lot of interesting parallels between the two sides of this argument. Um, on the 
on the right wing, you see the, the pro-life, anti-abortion fanaticism. Um, reasonable people can disagree on abortion. Um, you know, certainly there are reasonable people who are, who are pro-life, but you do see anti-abortion extremism on the far, on the, on the right. But then you see, uh, you see this, the parallel things, but things, things, uh, things like say animal rights or environmentalism on the left. Um, you see the this very apocalyptic religious view on uh, certain sectors of the uh, right, like the Christian Zionists and stuff like that. You see a kind of doomsday apocalypticism on the left involving the environment. I remember, you know, 25 years ago, I had a leftist friend who said, "We got 20 years to save the planet." Well, 20, you know, 25 years later, the planet's still here. Um, you have uh, the religious right who regards the uh, the you know, homosexuality as a mortal sin. Whereas the left inverses that and they make it into a sacrament. It's something that no one can ever disagree with or criticize or, or give, not give reverence to. Um, you have uh, you know, the, the, the conservatives who want to remove books from schools or libraries for being too sexually explicit, whereas the left wants to censor material that they consider to be racist or sexist or has the N-word in it. I mean, even to the point of removing works like um, Mark Twain's works or like something like To Kill a Markingbird. You know, both of which were profoundly anti-racist works, certainly for their time. They want to have these books removed from, say, schools because they have the N-word in them. Um, you also see the anti-porn crusaders on both sides of the fence, you know, the, the religious right on one hand and the anti-porn and anti-sex worker feminists on the other. You know, the traditional right wing has their war on drugs. The left has their war on guns. Um, you know, you have on the on the uh, on the right, you have the church ladies who are crying about smoking and drinking and gambling and cussing and ladies of the evening. And you've had parallels on the left, the smoking and, and fatty food and all sorts of other things. And we could go on and on and on identifying these parallels. But what we see is both sides have this kind of ideological superstructure that they're using to um, justify their own efforts to gain control over the state and essentially impose their own you know, political and, and socioeconomic and demographic interest on the wider society by means of state power. Very, very interesting. Those, those parallels are, are totally right. Um, it's funny how you, they both have their doomsday scenario. Um, yeah. I guess according to, was it Al Gore, the ice cap should be fully melted by now, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, well, no, people, I want to clarify by saying that reasonable people can disagree on these things. I mean, reasonable people can disagree about climate change or, or global warming or animal rights or abortion and all these other things. But we, what we do see with these kinds of issues is a very cult-like mentality uh, to the point where I've even seen people propose legislation banning climate change denial, you know, like heresy, you know, like in the Middle Ages, the church would ban heresy. Well, now climate change denial is a new form of heresy, so it has to be banned. Right, and 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 really, that really comes to your point you made earlier about them being moral realists, actually, because well, if you're if you're if you can go to jail or be fined for climate change denial, well, that's a pretty rigid belief uh, instead mm -hmm. of being a moral relativist. Now, do you, do you see any positives in? I know you don't like the word cultural Marxism, but any positives? Um, in this PC uh, culture, is there anything that good come, comes about it? Uh, well, I think that it has its roots in things that are essentially positive. Uh, just like I think, you know, historic Marxism had its roots in things that were essentially positive. The, uh, it, 
the situation of the working class in the 19th century under 19th century capitalism was dire and, and the class oppression and class exploitation that uh, historic Marxism critiques and writes about certainly existed. You don't have to be a Marxist to recognize all that. All you have to do is read the works of thinkers like Charles Dickens and you see what the condition of the working class was like in the, in the Industrial Revolution. So certainly the idea of class struggle for better uh, conditions or whatever for the working class was legitimate. And, and over a course of a century, the condition of the working class did improve, uh, you know, in part, I think, due to economic development and technological development, but also due to uh, a wide range of reforms, political and economic and legal reforms that you know, improved the condition of the working class, um, somewhat at least. Uh, and by extension, uh, many of the issues that came out of the um, cultural upheavals of the post-war period of the 1960s and 70s and all of that, um, of, you know, which in turn has given rise to cultural Marxism or whatever we want to call it, political correctness. You know, certainly we can uh, agree that the old-fashioned racial segregation system we had in the United States uh, prior to the civil rights era, certainly we can agree that that was a bad thing or certainly that was a, a form of oppression by, by reasonable standards. Um, and also when it comes to these other issues, we have to remember that, uh, for example, the, the major uh, institution in uh, the, the largest university here in Virginia, uh, where I live, is the University of Virginia, which did not allow women to be students there until uh, 1971, uh, with, you know, within my lifetime. Um, and also remember that uh, you know, in the 1960s and 1970s, when the gay rights movement was founded, you know, gays were considered felonious criminals. You could be sent to prison for years for, for being homosexual. Uh, yeah, so certainly a lot of these uh, so-called oppression issues, that's a common term now you see among a lot of leftists, among the social justice warriors and the left anarchists, they say they're anti-oppression activists. Many of the things that they say certainly have a lot of truth to them, or partial truths. Um, you know, certainly the United States has a very lengthy history of racial oppression and, you know, in, to some degree, uh, gender oppression and certainly oppression of gays and and uh, when it comes to all of the other things like that, you know, I, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an anarchist, you know, I, I, mean, I have very strong libertarian values. It doesn't bother me if somebody is transgender or, or transsexual or whatever, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, like Donald Trump said that, you know, it's fine if Bruce Jenner or Caitlyn Jenner uses the ladies room at Trump Tower. I suppose if I owned a Trump Tower, I'd be fine with that too. You know, that's, I'm, I'm not a social conservative in other words, you know, I'm not somebody that, you know, is against gay people or against uh, uh, the women's equality, or I, I don't have anything against anybody's ethnicity or anything like that. What I am against is this kind of uh, philosophy of totalitarian humanism that I've seen develop in uh, more recent times. You know, that's ostensibly uh, this is being perpetrated in the name of social justice and equality for everyone. Um, you know, just like uh, Bolshevism. Uh, Bol you know, keep in mind that during the 20th century. Um, for much of the 20th century, half the world was controlled by totalitarian dictatorships that in practice uh, strongly resembled fascism, but yet ostensibly they were ruling in the name of humanity and the working class and things like that. You know, what is the dominant party in North Korea today? It's called the Workers' Party. Uh, you know, the, uh, if you go and you read the constitutions of some of the old Stalinist states from the 20th century, like Albania, um, in Bahasa's Albania, you see that it sounds very uh, similar to what political correctness sounds like today. In, in the uh, Albanian constitution, they actually had a provision for the protection of free speech, except, but it lists all these exceptions, and the exceptions were speech of a racist, 
fascist, religious, nationalist, you know, uh, xenophobic, whatever kind of orientation. And that's exactly what PC people will tell you today. They'll say, we're fine, we're fine with free speech. We just don't believe in, in free speech for hate speech. And of course, they define hate speech so broadly as it can mean virtually anything. So they really don't believe in free speech. They believe in free speech for leftists. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's really what I see this becoming. And I see, I see this uh, political correctness, this uh, social justice warrior stuff being the modern version or the 21st century version of what Bolshevism was in the 20th century. It's a, an authoritarian, reactionary, uh, state-centric ideology. It's a very illiberal philosophy that aims to suppress dissent and aims to uh, have the entire society dominated by the state, ostensibly in the name of equality and and you know social justice and all of these things, but really it's a system where self-appointed elites rule over everyone else. Now that's what Bolshevism was. If you if you ever went to any of those countries, you could see that the uh, level of social stratification between, say, party members and, and ordinary people was very extreme, even more so than what you found in the West. Uh, and that was uh, and I, I see this essentially being the same uh, thing going on today with this uh, political correctness stuff. You know the the most zealous proponents of political correctness tend to be upper middle class, privileged college students, and then they're, you know, they're they're um, most most you know, most enthusiastic champions tend to be the you know, what they call the latte liberals, the upper middle class, professional class, or even upper class uh, uh, people who are you know, have very politically correct values, but who are socially very privileged. Um, I don't see this as being a, an egalitarian movement in any. In any, in any serious sense, and it's certainly a very illiberal movement. Yeah, it's like, um, you know, they say we believe in free speech, but you can't say anything that hurts anyone's feelings. Well, you know, isn't the point of free speech is to say things, even if it does hurt people's feelings, to get the, you know, to get what you really think out and then work from there. You know, you can't really work towards any type of truth unless people are speaking their mind. Now, why do you think there's such a pushback against this PC culture, especially amongst freedom-minded people, but I think in general throughout the culture, I mean, you can see with the rise of Donald Trump and with the rise of other uh, so-called anti-establishment uh, people like in France, Marine Le Pen, you know, you got it actually going in a lot of places. Why do you think there's such a pushback now against this uh, PC culture? Well, I think a lot of things are driving that. One is that the condition of the actual working to middle classes is actually deteriorating. In the United States in particular, uh, class divisions are wider than they have ever been at any point since the 1920s before the Great Depression. Uh, you know, the, the division between Democrats and Republicans is as wide as it's been since the, uh, is wider than any time since the 1870s, like after the Civil War. But the uh, class divisions are about as wide as they've been at any time since the 1920s, right before the Great Depression. It's, uh, at the height of the radical labor movement. Um, so I think that a lot of people in the Western world, particularly in the United States, but in other places too, are experiencing downward mobility. The traditional working class is experiencing downward mobility, largely because of the impact of neoliberal economic policies and the global economy. Um, parallel to that, they're experiencing the loss of their traditional cultural identity. Um, they have seen a dramatic transformation of their own societies on a cultural level just in the spaces of a few decades uh, in, in terms of demographics, in terms of uh, social norms and social values. Um, 
you'll, there's mass immigration. That's one thing. There's the way that uh, this, all of these things like gay uh, marriage and, and transgender rest, restrooms and all of that are constantly being pushed upon them. I think more than that, it's just the the smugness of the other side of the of the PC um, class, if you will, or, P, or proponents of PC. This idea that uh, that the traditional working class or the traditional working middle class is the enemy. Um, the speech that Hillary Clinton gave last year, where she talked about the deplorables, uh, I think that's what she's talking about. You know, the uh, the idea that people that ordinary conventional traditional working to middle class people who, you know, are somewhat conservative. They, they go to church. They, uh, you know, they generally like the idea of a conventional nuclear family. Uh, that's not, you know, now the nuclear family is not the traditional model of the family, but that's what modern people think is a traditional family. Um, you know, they're not entirely comfortable with, um, you know, to say their kid's school having, uh, having allowing uh, guys that claim to be transgender into the girl's restroom. You know, they, they don't necessarily want to be forced to bake a wedding cake for uh, a gay couple if they don't, you know, if they don't believe in uh, homosexuality as a you know, moral or religious or philosophical sense. And, and there's a lot of other things like that. I mean, it's, I, don't, I don't think there's any one straw that's broken the camel's back. I think that it, the combination of political correctness on one hand and the way that it becomes more extreme and more pushy over time, uh, and, and more ridiculous over time, uh, combined with the uh, sinking position of the working to middle classes economically and the wider demographic transformation that many countries are experiencing. Uh, and another thing too is just the sheer incompetence of the Western ruling classes. Uh, if you look at the ruling classes and the political classes of the United States and of the Western European nations, uh, most of the EU countries, what you see is that they're a joke. I mean, they're, you know, they're not only are they incompetent, but they're just comical characters. You know, each new group of people that comes along is more ridiculous than the one before. And I think that um, someone like, say, uh, Donald Trump or, or, or Marine Le Pen or, or um, you know, there's plenty of other groups like that in, in different European countries. I think they speak to that. I think they speak to this discontent that's being generated by all of these different kinds of factors. Um, now, the left, of course, interprets this as saying, well, this means fascism was on the rise. You know, once again, fascism is making a comeback after you know, it was defeated in World War II, and now in the 21st century, it's coming back. And I think that's nonsense. The, uh, the all, virtually all of the right-wing populist movements that have developed you know, in recent years, whether in the United States or in other nations, I mean, there's a lot of variation among them, for one thing. You know, there's a, you know, there's the Trump movement. There's the, uh, uh, the Front National and and um, in France. There's the UKIP and Brexit and all of that. There's the uh, um, Sweden Democrats, the Swiss People's Party. Uh, I'm not necessarily a, a supporter of any of these groups, by the way. That, that that's, this doesn't reflect my politics at all. You know, I was not a Trump supporter, nor a Hillary supporter, for example. Um, but what these populist right-wing movements are is not a return of fascism and it's not a return of conservatism proper in the sense of thrown and altered traditionalism where it's about people having to know their place and respect their natural elites what it's about is more akin to peasant revolts it's more akin to the you know in traditional societies where the peasants know they're getting screwed by the aristocrats and finally they pick up the fish forks and and, and have at it um, and as far as the actual ideas that these movements are pushing, they're pushing ideas that would have been mainstream or even left wing just a generation ago. Um, 
For example, if you look at the Front National in France with Marine Le Pen, they are on economic issues, the most left-wing party in France. They defend the welfare state and the social safety net against neoliberalism. They defend French national self-determination against American imperialism, against the European Union, and against uh, NATO and these other uh, either, you know, American imperialist or global capitalist institutions, which leftists are supposed to be opposed to. They defend uh, women's rights and gay rights against things like um, uh, reactionary Islam, which, you know, as they recognize, is a, is a backward, you know, feudal theocratic culture. Now, that doesn't apply to all forms of Islam, but, but the Islamic fundamentalism is certainly true. Um, so what is the National Front defending? They're defending national self-determination. They're defending the social safety net for the working class. They're defending women's rights and gay rights against uh, reactionary Islam. Um, that, you know, that, that would have been considered the left uh, just a generation ago. And, uh, and that's true of many other movements of this type that you see in Europe as well. Now, you also see some movements of this type that are genuine fascist. Of all the populist movements that emerged in, in Europe recently, that you know, the only one that I think could really be considered fascist would be the Golden Dawn in Greece. I mean, they're basically Greek neo-Nazis. But other than that, most of the uh, populist right-wing movements in Europe now are, are you know, center-right at best, and arguably they're to the left of the official left on many issues, certain economic issues, certainly a lot of international issues. Uh, and, and as far as the uh, what's happening with Donald Trump, you know, Donald Trump personally, who knows what motivates him? Uh, he seems to be more about uh, um, self-promotion than anything else, but. I think that what he represents is a faction of the ruling class, a faction of the elite that disagrees with the neoconservative foreign policy paradigm that's dominated at least since the Bush era. And they also disagree with the neoliberal economic paradigm that's been dominant at least since the Bill Clinton era. And they want to reverse course. They want to move towards a, a different approach to geopolitics and a different approach to economic policy. Now, there's still a representation of the ruling class, just a different faction of the ruling class. But the idea that all of this is a turn towards fascism is silly. And it's, uh, the, uh, you know, we had the, when Trump was inaugurated, we had the, uh, the riots and you know, the inauguration about how a fascist is taking power. And that, I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, the, uh, you know, Trump's pr platform is just a standard brand, boring, right of center platform. Uh, and that's true of most of these movements elsewhere as well. Yeah, I, th I think, um, you know, if the, you know, we've already had a merger of state and corporate power. So to call this fascism and not to call the previous, you know, you know, so many years, fascism would be kind of contradictory. Uh, it's almost like the term fascism now is an emotional reaction. Someone who who goes against the PC culture and says things that people don't like well now that's fascism if, if i get emotionally triggered or charged or whatever yeah it, well it's something on that it that, that's yeah that's a very abused term you know fascism was a, a movement or collection of movements that emerged at a specific time period and that have specifically identifiable characteristics and there are genuine scholars of fascism that have written about this i think one of the best is paul Gottfried. uh he put, published a book recently called uh, fascism career of a concept um, you know, there's a, another scholar of fascism that I think it's interesting is Stan Payne. Um, now, there are scholars and critics of fascism on the left that, that uh, critique and study fascism in a serious way. 
uh, um, Eco and some of those other people, Starin Hill and some others. Um, but the term fascist is, is just thrown out as an epithet. It's like all of the swear words. Think about all the swear words people use that don't mean anything. You know, what does the MF or word really mean? I mean, it's just used to mean anything or the, the F word. People use that F word in all kinds of contexts to mean anything and does it without its actual, you know, literal meaning. Um, and the word fascism is thrown out in the same way. Uh, and this this is nothing new, by the way. Um, George Orwell noted back in the 1930s and 1940s that back then the left would throw out the word fascism to mean just about anything. In fact, that was a tactic that was uh, invented by the Stalinists. The, the old communist parties had this uh, tendency to label their, their rivals as fascists. They would they would call the Trotskyites Trotskyite fascists. They would call the uh, anarchists anarcho-fascists. They would call the social democrats social fascists. Uh, and that's just been a, a long-standing tradition on the left. You know, everyone who's not part of their particular sect of the left is a fascist. Um, so yeah, it's just a really abused um, epithet that means nothing in, in, in the present time. All right. Yeah, that's that's good to know. I didn't. I don't have that historical context, so it's. You'd see how these things just, you know, are repeated over and over throughout. Uh, last question. So how do we go about fighting oppression? Because like you said, and I agree with you, the, the, a lot of the people who are really PC, they come from a, they have the right intentions and they even understand, like, look, we have, you know, we still have probably some racial discrimination and policing. We still have, you know, I mean... It would be nice to get rid of some of the, you know, beliefs that some people have, you know, that aren't, that probably are counterproductive. But how do we go, how do we balance fighting oppression and being, you know, and, and trying to get rid of that, but also accepting normal inequalities and accepting normal, like just beliefs that are against your, you know, might come off as um, oppressive. How do we balance those two out, two out? and also like, is there a balance between, you know, always proactively making the cultural the culture uh, equal as opposed to letting it balance out on its own? Like, how, where's the balance between those two? Well, uh, first of all, I think it's necessary to define you know, what oppression is. I mean, the, the term oppression is being thrown out so frequently as it can mean just about anything. You know, someone, uh, you know, if someone has any slighter slightly greater advantage over some other person then that's oppression or you know somebody looked at you wrong that's oppression or somebody said something to you that you found insulting that's oppression you know that i, I get i see things get labeled as oppression all the time they don't really strike me as oppression they strike me as you know maybe something that's disagreeable or maybe something that somebody you know was uncomfortable with um but i think that the problem with the left is this the left in the United States and in the Western world has been so successful when it comes to these issues that in order to essentially stay in business, they have to keep raising the bar by defining oppression in ever more ridiculous and far-fetched ways. Now, I want to clarify that by saying that there's plenty of things that we can reasonably identify as oppression that should be challenged. Uh, the first thing, in my view, would be American foreign policy. Uh, if you really care about the well-being and interest of dark-skinned people, then the first thing you should do if you are a resident or citizen of the United States is criticize the fact that the American government regularly slaughters uh, thousands upon thousands uh, of 
brown-skinned people and have killed uh, millions of them uh, over a period of decades. That's really the first thing. If you really care about racism, if you really think that fighting racism is the most important thing there is and equality of races and ethnic groups is the most important social and cultural and political value that there is, and you really want to look at problems like that in our society and want to combat that, then the first thing you have to look at is American foreign policy and um, and the body count that has been generated by American foreign policy and look at how many of those bodies are actually black or brown. And I think you know that's really probably the first place to go before we look at anything else. Now, when it comes to issues in domestic American society, again, if you wanna, if racism is your thing, if you really wanna fight racism, really think racism is the most awful thing that there is, you know, the ultimate evil, and you wanna do anything um, you can to oppose uh, harms that are inflicted upon black and brown people, what the the, the, uh, the left needs to look at is the uh, the war on drugs. They need to look at the police state that's been built up on, around the war on drugs, uh, and then the way that this police state has been expanded into all these other things: wars on terrorism, and crime, and guns, and gangs, and all these kinds of other things. And then the mass incarceration system that we have, and everything that's associated with that. You know, there is no policy that the American government has pursued in its entire history. Well, other than slavery and the uh, ethnic cleansing of the indigenous people. There's no other policy that the United States government has pursued that's done more harm to black and brown people than the war on drugs. The war on drugs is the reason you have the mass incarceration rates among um, young black people today. It's the reason why you have so much violent crime in these communities. Uh, not to say that there wouldn't be problems of that type anyway under, uh, you know, even without the war on drugs, but any, any problems that you find in poor urban communities have been exacerbated 10, 20, 30 times over by the impact of the war on drugs. Uh, so I think that's one of the main things, particularly that, that libertarian leaning leftists need to be combating. Um, if we want to look at other issues, if we want to look at oppression generally, we need to take a look at the way in which the state uh, impedes the economic self-determination and self-deficiency of a wide range of disadvantaged people. You know, if we want to say, well, who is oppressed in mainstream American society? I think we could say the bottom, the bottom 15 to 20 percent social economic levels of all races, all religions, all genders uh, could be considered oppressed in the sense that there's a wide range of institutional policies uh, imposed by the government, by industries, by corporations, by banks that disadvantage these people in a wide range of ways. And, and we could get into a lot of really intricate detail about that happens. Um, if we want to look at forms of uh, social oppression, that is oppression that's not coming uh, directly from the state, like you know, being murdered by the state or being imprisoned by the state, um, or, uh, or direct economic oppression, uh, there are population groups that really are uh, shunned by the wider society and, and, and disliked and disadvantaged just for being who they are. And I think sex workers is probably the most uh, obvious example of that, uh, in addition to all the uh, abuse that's inflicted upon those classes of people by the state itself. Um, so there's a wide range of issues we can certainly look at when it comes to oppression. But what I would say is, you know, whatever you think about uh, oppression issues, the oppression issues should be addressed in a way that does not abandon the traditional uh, liberal framework of, of politics and, and, and law. Um, if we look at all of the you know, civil rights, human rights that people in modern societies take for granted, 
uh, things like you know separation of church and state or the you know, the right to have a trial if you're arrested and things like that. Um, those are all rights that historically did not exist in most societies that still don't exist in many societies today and that these were rights that were achieved only through centuries of struggle. Now what I see people on the left doing is trying to toss all of this aside in the name of some sort of abstract equality or uh, addressing you know, com comparatively petty issues. Uh, one example is uh, the way that uh, there's this emphasis on rape culture now. Uh, you know, rape really does exist. It, it's a crime. It's considered a crime in all 50 American states. In many of the states, you can get a life sentence for it. Right? But at the same time, the, uh, the focus on this rape culture thing has gotten to be such that there's this idea that uh, due process should be denied to people who are accused of rape, that you know, a, a rape victim should be automatically believed, be believed no matter what. And it doesn't work like that. You know, it doesn't work like that with armed robbery or other kinds of crimes. You know, there has to be some standard for evidence, due process, you know, different sides of the story, things of that nature. Um, you know, trying to do away with free speech, freedom of religion, freedom of association, um, all of these kinds of things in the name of advancing social equality is a terrible idea. I mean, saying, for example, that you know, Christian-owned bakeries have to bake gay wedding cakes is, is, is a disaster. It's a disaster for freedom of religion and freedom of association. It's also a disaster uh, in terms of uh, maintaining separation of church and state. If, you, if, if a lot of these people on the left fear nothing so much as reactionary conservative Christian movements. Well, if you want to fuel reactionary conservative Christian movements, all you need to do is start going and telling just ordinary folks who are happen to be Christian who own a business that they have to bake a wet gay wedding cake or things like, of that nature. So um, the left, I think, is really um, under really in many ways undermining its own objectives with some of this kind of stuff. But I think that any, you know, any effort to address oppression issues needs to be done within this framework that, uh, that respects and upholds traditional liberal values. Like it, it used to be the ACLU would defend the civil rights or legal rights of the most odious people imaginable. They would defend the right of the American Nazi Party to hold a rally in a Jewish neighborhood. They would defend the civil rights of war criminals like Oliver North and people like that if they were railroaded by the legal system. Uh, and you don't really see the left doing that today. Uh, so the left needs to reclaim uh, a commitment to these classical liberal, traditional liberal values. Yeah, I think you make a lot of great points there. Um, first off being that we have overcome a lot of oppression already. That is often very overlooked. I myself am even guilty of looking at everything in this oppressive lens as, as if we haven't made any progress in society. and it's not to say that we, that we that we don't have a lot more progress to go, but there has been a lot of success in previous times of overcoming a lot of this oppression. And, and I, it, you get caught up in looking at everything in this lens of oppression. Everyone's oppressed, and so you got to solve this and solve that. But then when you when you help this oppressive you know group, then it brings down this group, and it becomes this cycle that that never really ends. And the other point I wanted to make was that I think I'm starting to realize myself that that a lot of the oppression in society is it's, it's not contained in one edge, one wedge issue or this wedge issue. All these wedge issues of oppression are kind of 
all stemming from the same source, which is, I would say, the ruling class, the elite class. All the working people are getting screwed over, no matter your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, your religion. It doesn't matter. Everyone's getting screwed over by the ruling class. And so instead of focusing on this wedge issue or that, maybe we should unite around the, the common source of the problem um, instead of you know, because because we're fighting each other on all these wedge issues, but well, we're all being oppressed here. So we need to transcend that and start to look at you know the commonalities we have because we're not going to solve any of these wedge issues until until we get to the source. So, Keith, really enjoyed the talk. Um, thanks for coming on. Uh, I hope uh, I think next week we're going to do neoliberalism. Uh, it's going to be a continuing series of different topics. So really happy you came on. Again, if you like the video, give it a like. Drop a comment on your own views on cultural Marxism. Uh, and check out thelastamericanvagabond.com. We're going to have a lot more content coming your way and trying to get people the truth so we can get to the source of the problem. That's the ultimate goal here. So thanks again, and we'll talk soon. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks for having me on.